You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Good morning, comrades, and welcome to the latest episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. For more on Perch Perspectives, check us out at perchperspectives.com. We have a free twice-a-week newsletter. Uh, you can also write to us at info at perchperspectives.com with any questions about the services that we offer businesses and enterprises, um, or just if you want to ask a question about the podcast, we're always happy to hear from listeners. One brief housekeeping note before we get on to the podcast. I'm joining um, the president and founder of Red Fan Communications, Kathleen Lucenti, for a webinar at the end of the month um, on October 29th on communications and geopolitics and what leaders need to know now for navigating not just the international environment, uh, but the domestic political environment and how you need to be prepared for some of the shifts, some of the risks, and some of the opportunities that are happening there. Uh, You don't want to miss that. And if you're interested, again, info at perchperspectives.com. Just email us and we'll get you all the information that you need. Okay, enough of that. Joining me on the podcast uh, today is Max Suchkov. Uh, Max is a senior fellow and associate professor at the Moscow State Institute of International Relations, or MAGIMO, if you're in the know. He's also a non-resident expert at the Russian International Affairs Council and an associate research fellow at the Italian Institute of International Political Studies. I've known Max for a couple of years now, um, and he's an insightful, um, a really insightful observer of Russian foreign policy in the Middle East. And I've also found his insights on American politics particularly interesting as well because of his background. Uh, Max, thank you so much for coming on and for joining us. To our listeners, thanks for being with us on this journey. Just continue to ask that you please support us by spreading the word about Perch, telling folks about the services that we can supply businesses, and and also signing people up for the free podcast and the free newsletter. It's my goal to continue keeping the newsletter and the podcast free going forward. Uh, but the, the more you can spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the things that we can do for folks, the better it is for us. So take care, wear your masks, uh, try to stay sane out there, and we'll see you out there. Max, thank you for joining us. It's October 9th. We're two days after Vladimir Putin's birthday. Happy birthday, Vladimir. Did you get <laughs> President Putin anything for his birthday, Max? Uh, I did, but I'm not going to tell you, right? Uh, I, was, <laughs> I think the best birthday gift for him is, is my vote uh, I, in an ideal world, but I don't think he needs my vote anyway. So, <laughs> uh, Well, that's uh, maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, <laughs> I've, I've wanted to have you on for a couple reasons and for a long time. I think it's always important for Western listeners to get a Russian perspective on foreign policy and what's going on in the world. Uh, but I wasn't planning when we scheduled this date um, that we were going to be right smack dab in the middle of the most mm. serious fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan, um, certainly since I've been a, a political analyst. I don't know about you. Um, tell us, and I, I know you're focusing on this pretty closely, so this is going to appear in a week. So listeners, you know, sort of give us a little bit of... Uh, of leeway here if things seem a little bit out of date. But Max, I want to know, first of all, sort of what's the latest on Nagorno-Karabakh and where do you see the situation going from here right now? I know that just this morning, I think um, Putin invited the foreign ministers of Azerbaijan and Armenia to Moscow to have a little chat. And it seems that they said yes. And Aliyev said that he was open to talking, even if he's not open to concession. So right now, sitting here today on the 9th, where do you see the trajectory of the conflict going? Well, thanks for having me. First of all, it's a pleasure to, to be with you uh, and uh, look forward to the conversation. On the Gorn Karabakh, I think this has been the, the biggest uh, fight uh, that the two parties have had, uh, you know, ever since uh, 1994, since the ceasefire was introduced. And I think, uh, and, you know, 
Russian leadership has been pretty clear about that. That what what makes it different this time, and by that I mean, I mean the, the Armenia and, and Azerbaijan had uh, occasional fights. The latest one was over the summer this year, and before that was two years uh, or four years ago when there was really you know big and important uh, fight between the two. But this one, it 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 it's much bigger in scale. There's like an uh, offensive. Uh, shelling of, of you know civilian infrastructure and cities, uh, a lot of hardware involved. Uh, what, but what what makes it different in particular is Turkey's involvement, and surprisingly, you know the kind of the main uh, spokesperson on the conflict is the Russian foreign intelligence chief, which kind of interesting in itself, and you know which is rare for the person in his position, of course. But he made it clear that you know Turkey's direct involvement on the side of Azerbaijan uh, changes the calculus to a degree where you know Moscow has to also be more active than it's been over the past uh, several years. The reading in Russia is that you know Turkey's involvement really six. Uh, is about you know Ankara trying to secure uh, peace at the negotiating table for itself. So Turkey is also a member of this Minsk OSC group, a kind of main international body uh, that is supposed to kind of manage and settle the conflict and you know oversee the parties. Uh, but Turkey is not a co-chair. It's Russia, France, and the United States that are co-chairs. So one reason maybe, you know, that Turkey is trying to kind of uh, raise its profile that may have to do with Erdogan's ambitions to, you know, to have a larger influence in the region, uh, similar to kind of policy patterns that we've seen in Syria and Libya, you know, over Cyprus and many other former Ottoman lands. Uh, but, you know, it's to, to do so, Turkey will have to either run in conflict with Russian interests directly or try to kind of, quote unquote, negotiate a Syria type deal, you know, something like Astana on Karabakh or something like that, you know. <laughs> well, I, I want to get into the, the Turkey-Russia relationship in a little more depth. But before we do, I, I want to push a little bit more on that, mm -hmm. which is to say, do you have a sense of is Turkey sort of trying to take advantage of a situation that was outside of its control? And this was really just Azerbaijan or Armenia, you know, trying to settle some scores. Um, or do you feel like Turkey was in the background, maybe pushing things here a little bit more because they wanted some kind of, as you said, whether it's a, a greater role in negotiating the settlement or a greater role internationally? Um, do you feel like Turkey is taking advantage of this, or do you feel like Turkey is actually one of the powers pushing the conflict forward right now? I think in a way it's both, and, and, and we've observed a similar pattern where Turkey thought there was, you know, Russian influence in the Caucasus diminished shortly after the war in Georgia in 2008. Uh, Turkey put forward this proposal on the partnership of cooperation and stability in the region uh, that, you know, looked beautiful on the paper, but then, you know, obviously it, it had a lot of issues uh, with Armenians and then it didn't really materialize. Now we see this kind of another round and you may see, you know, kind of Erdogan looks like he's hopscotching one crisis to another. Uh, and now, you know, kind of Russian-Turkish interests are, are again, you know, against each other. Uh, but I think what was very interesting in Erdogan's speech to the Turkish parliament, 
he said that the entire crisis actually goes back to Russia's annexation of Crimea, uh, which he he kind of he mentioned that, and then he said, well, and then an Armenian occupation of Nagorno-Karabakh is kind of a consequence of that. I mean, it looks a little weird because you know a Russian takeover of Crimea took place in twenty. Uh, 14 and Armenia holds a grip of Karabakh since early 1990s. Uh, I don't think it's like a direct consequence, but I think this also refers to what he sees, what what Ankara sees, as kind of you know uh, Russia, you know, raising its profile in the region of uh, vital interest for Turkey, uh, and then maybe now is a good time. Uh, to change the balance of the status quo in favor of Azerbaijan. And now there are different theories of why now is the right moment, right? Some say uh, because, you know, Azerbaijan is running out of natural resources and the prices of oil has not been stable. And, you know, Aliyev has to present some successes domestically. Uh, you know, he was willing to kind of accept Turkish uh a Turkish role in the conflict to, you know, change the status quo in favor of Baku. Uh, others would say, you know, well, you know, Pashinyan has been a new Armenian leader, has not been as kind of smart and diplomatic as previous Armenian leaders. So he had, you know, made some mistakes and, and, and Armenia didn't accept uh, some proposals that the Russians uh, made to that to them in, in the past. And that kind of ignited uh, the, the, the situation. Uh, yeah. Where, so where do you see Iran in all of this? Because one of the things that happened mm. this week was Iran. I mean, there was some shelling that sort of accidentally, I think, went you know past Iranian borders. Um, and Iran came out, multiple people in the Iranian government came out and said, this isn't okay and this needs to de-escalate or we're going mm. to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Um, and Iran is sort of a weird, uh, you know, has its pragmatic relationship with Russia, has a fairly pragmatic relationship right now with Turkey. Probably, I would think, sort of culturally and historically would would see the conflict more from Azerbaijan's point of view. Um, so where do you see, do you think they're relevant at all here? Do you think they're going to play a role in whatever happens next? Or are they just kind of a bystander? Um, what What is Iran's role here going forward? Yeah, Iran is very interesting uh, on a few accounts, actually. Uh, we Well, because uh, Armenia's border, Russia does not have a uh, border with Armenia, uh, and Armenia borders, you know, Georgia and Georgia closed the border so that there are no military cargoes traveling from Russia to uh, Armenia through the Georgian airspace. Or uh, so you, we've seen these images of uh, some Russian cargo traveling along the Caspian to Iran and then for, from Iran to Armenia. So it's an open question whether this is kind of uh, Russia supplying its military base in Armenia, or there's some cargo that goes to the Armenian party. Uh, but Iran is kind of a transit state here, which is quite interesting. As you mentioned, uh, you know, it has this link, kind of Shia, quote-unquote Shia brotherhood, right? And the Iranian uh, clergy and some, say, Ali Akbar Vilayati, you know, top advisor to Ayatollah Khamenei, said that Iran is kind of on the on the Azeri side because they support uh, restoration of territorial integrity, as they called it. Uh, but then other Iranian politicians were more kind of mild in their tone. And, you know, in 1990s, it looked more like Iran was supporting Armenia. I think bigger Iranian concern from what we see here is that Azerbaijan may be, you know, aligning too closely to Turkey. 
and then they may align on the basis of kind of language linguistic and and cultural identity you know Turkic nations rather than religious nations uh some folks in Azerbaijan also are telling us that uh Aliyev's kind of partnership with Turkey and invitation of these uh you know different fighters from Syria uh, pro turkic elements uh, you know Russians think they're like Salafi you know terrorist jihadist radicals uh what's not about Iran and, and this is kind of Aliyev's way to uh to level Iranian presence, Shia presence in the country, you know, which I think is interesting. And I think it's also kind of a too difficult game to play, you know, if you want to balance Shia influence with too much like a radical Sunni influence. That's a, that's a fork state that uh, claims to be secular, actually. You know, uh, that's, that's, but I think in this particular conflict, a lot of parties think that they can actually, I, I mean, it, for for my money, I think uh, all of the parties are honestly overestimating their capabilities and their and how smart they are, <laughs> you know. Uh, but my t- my sense is that Russia is going to play what I would call a diplomacy of attrition with Turkey, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, just basically, you know, we have this proposal from Turkey. Let's let's do a deal. You know, on on Karabakh, and you know, Russia and Turkey being at, at the head of the table, and, uh, and peace guarantors and things like this. Uh, but then you see Putin inviting foreign ministers, as you mentioned, to Moscow the next day, as if like the Russians didn't really hear the Turkish proposal. Uh, and I think with this uh, quote-unquote diplomacy of attrition, Russia will now plug away pl- at at its own kind of bilateral initiative to uh, make peace between the parties. But also try to win time because we're now in early October. In a few weeks, it'll be snowing in Karabakh, so it'll make the offensive more difficult for Azerbaijan and, and, and pro-Turkish forces if there are any uh, there. So uh, the, cal- the calculation here in Moscow is that they, they will have they will come around actually and sit at the negotiating table anyway. There is no chance. For Azerbaijan to uh, win its territories back militarily. Hmm. I hadn't. That actually scares me a little bit because that means that Azerbaijan also has sort of a a finite amount of time that it can capitalize on whatever advances mm. it's made, and that it can defend whatever its whatever positions it thinks it needs to to take to make facts on the ground or whatever whatever Aliyev was saying mm. today. But Maxim, I, so here's two questions. Uh, they're both sort of the same type, but I think I'm hearing you right that you're not expecting a broader conflagration at all out of this thing, that there's probably going to be some kind of, if not a negotiated settlement, um, you know, the forces of, of climate will will make sure that this thing is probably going to get stalled and go into a frozen conflict, at least for a couple months. Um, so, But let, let me just ask that question directly. Do you think there's any, going to be any kind of broader conflagration? Is there any chance of Russia and Turkey, for instance, fighting or getting involved here on a direct level? And then sort of zooming farther back, as you sort of alluded to, I mean, Russia and Turkey are on the opposite sides of Libya. They're on the opposite sides in Syria. They're on the opposite sides mm-hmm. on the Kurdish issue. They're on the op- I mean, it seems like they're on the opposite sides everywhere. Yeah. Um, what, is this going to come to a head? Are, are Erdogan and Putin just going to be able to have diplomacy forever and pragmatism forever and manage those those forces? I mean, they've done so successfully in the past, but how long can that hold? It, it feels like we're we're heading towards some kind of inevitable conflict, um, and I wonder mm-hmm. if you see it the same way. 
Yeah, well, I think uh, I actually not sure of the final outcome of, of this kind of Karabakh flare-up. I think there might be if we're trying to think of if there's any silver lining in a way. I think there might be depending on how much round Azerbaijan gets, uh, whether let's say first whether the line of contact between the Armenian and Azeri forces is going to be changed uh, due to this war, right? Uh, the second element is I think there might be some uh, relatively new conditions introduced that uh, may cease the that may cease fire for a while, but I don't think they will help the broader solution or, or settlement of, of of the conflict. You know, there, there might be some conditions that will help address the current crisis, but not necessarily the conflict. And I think the conflict will remain and not so much in a frozen form, but rather kind of in a smoldering uh, mode, you know, where you, you may have elements that will make, you know, a new, a new flare up or, uh, you know, make it less uh, possible. But uh, yeah, that's that's regarding the, the Karabakh. On Russia-Turkey, I actually have this theory on the, what I call the dialectics of fragility and flexibility in the Russian-Turkey relations. So the relations are very fragile, of course, because, you know, they're historic rivals, because there's a symmetry of interest, uh, all, all of our, a lot of things. You know, we have this personal chemistry, or again, chemistry, uh, quote-unquote chemistry, between Putin and Erdogan, and they're kind of in many ways similar to one another, uh, and both actually want to see a more de-westernized international system, uh, and Turkey, I think, sees Russia as a resource for its own kind of, you know, uh, for fulfilling its uh, regional ambitions or perhaps global ambitions. Uh, so in a way for Turkey, I would think Russia is a quote-unquote uh, sovereignty enabler. And by that, I mean, you know, more independent from the United States and most importantly from Western military technology. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you when you've seen in late in lately Canada, uh, what was that they they banned the supply of certain components for the Turkish drones, I think, right? Yes, the the, the Canadians don't seem to be able to stand up much to China, but when it comes mm -hmm. to Middle Eastern countries that do things they don't like, the Canadians are are very strong these days. Mm -hmm. So and and that actually uh, you know spurred a lot of uh, displease in Turkey, uh, understandably. And they say, well, we really need to make our, our own military technology. And this you know kind of the deal with Russia and S four hundred is important because the Russians will uh, share some technology or you know co-production and things like this. So they're really thinking about you know making their military industry more nationalized and less dependent on on the West. And Russia is perceived in China, of course, in that sense as well. As as very important resource, and and for Russia, of course, you know, having Turkey and if not in pro-Russian, then at least an anti-Western camp uh, is important and also helps uh, raise Russia's own international profile. Uh, but that you know, you have different this you know crisis uh, where, as you mentioned, uh, Russia and Turkey are on, are on opposite sides of the barricade. And uh, I think th there is also kind of this element of flexibility based on a cynical pragmatism on both sides. Uh, and uh, the conviction that grudging cooperation is more beneficial to Russia and Turkey than conflict. So, uh, you know, and th the flexibility 
component has so far protected Moscow and Ankara from more dangerous clashes. But this dialectic of fragility and flexibility could become the norm in Russian-Turkish interaction for a long time to come. And each subsequent crisis will you know, test once again which aspect of this relationship is strong. And I think in Karabakh, again, uh, it's kind of a new stress test for what's more in this relationship, fragility or flexibility. One issue we you didn't mention there or that I didn't mention, I guess, was that, I mean, we talked a little bit about Syria, Libya, South Caucasus. They're on sort of opposite sides there. Um, I wonder, how do you think Russia sees Turkey's moves in the eastern Mediterranean and with Greece? Mm-hmm. Because that seems to be a rare place where I get the point about, you know, Russia wanting Turkey as another power that's going to turn away from the mm-hmm. West and, and have these spheres of influence that are all self-contained. And you have your sphere and I have my sphere sort mm-hmm. of argument. Um, but it seems to me that if Russia wanted to go along with, say, France and some of the other European powers and helping out Greece, um, suddenly Russia gets in the strange position where it's on the opposite side of Turkey, but also is on the side of NATO and some of these other Western powers that, you know, in the past it was trying to get Turkey away from. I think it's pretty well clear now yeah. that Turkey has turned away from the West. So maybe that's already accomplished. I mean, what, what do you think the calculus like is there for for Russia when it's thinking about all these other things happening in the Middle East and North Africa and the South Caucasus, right. how does the Greece Eastern Mediterranean dynamic play in there, if at all? Yeah, if you if you remember perhaps the, the this uh, Turkey uh, this path between Turkey and Greece in the Eastern Mediterranean has been one crisis where Russia has relatively kept low public profile, no no you know major statements, no involvement. I mean Lavrov when he visited Damascus. He visited uh, Cyprus, but then there was nothing, you know, super, uh, super, super important and interesting. But that said, I think uh, Russia carefully watches of, of, of whether, you know, Turkey will uh, have access to all these uh, natural resources discovered there. And I think uh, there is kind of, apart from the security concern, there is also energy concern, you know, and Russia has been very careful making sure that there are no alternative routes, energy routes to Europe. Uh, and uh, now actually Moscow is pretty mad at Ankara uh, that the Turks are not using the Turk stream in full capacity. In fact, they started purchasing a more cheaper Qatari gas. Uh, and, you know, Russians feel a little bit kind of mis- 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 uh, outsmarted by this move uh, of Erdogan. Uh, and I think uh, this is kind of a, a very important uh, concern for Moscow to make sure that there are no alternative energy routes uh, popping out from the Eastern Mediterranean going to Europe that may challenge uh, Russian energy dominance there. Uh, in terms of security, uh, I think Russia looks at the Eastern Mediterranean kind of an, a larger extension of its quote-unquote southern uh you know security or or soft underbelly as churchill would call central asia back in the day but for now for russia now so it's central asia the caucasus the black sea the caspian that are all it's it's a soft underbelly so the middle east is kind of an extension of that in a way and you know russian military presence or military builds up in the eastern mediterranean in syria you know this potential talk of russian military deployments in egypt 
and you know all the, all all these speculations in Libya are more actually skeptical about Libya, but Egypt is is perhaps possible. Uh, you know, give a sense that Russia really wants to have this presence in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, on the one hand, to be able to monitor, you know, NATO and American military activities and possible, you know, missile launches. Uh, in terms of crisis or war, and also be able for to potentially intercept and things like this, but also dates back to kind of old-style Soviet geopolitical thinking of the region that you can't, you need to have access or at least exercise some leverage on one of the three choke points uh, of the region, right? The Suez Canal, uh, the Hormuz Strait, and the Bab el-Mandeb Strait. Uh, this is kind of you know, the, the the Soviets thought was important to, to have uh, influence in the region. Now, there is Russian initiative on the Persian Gulf, right? And all these uh, recent exercises in the Strait of Hormuz with Iranians. There is all this talk about, you know, Russian presence or considerations for such presence in Yemen, going back to, again, to uh, the Soviet uh, military facility in Aden. And the the Suez Canal. So there is, I think, uh, kind of this idea that this geopolitical posturing is important for the security and energy uh, reasons as well. Uh, But for now, there is no, if we're talking strictly about the East Mediterranean, there is no direct incentive for for Moscow to to come to clashes with with Ankara, uh, thinking that Ankara may be challenged by the regional players themselves. And there are many, of, you know, Israel, Egypt, UAE on the side of uh, Egypt, uh, Saudis on the side of Egypt. Uh, so there are a lot of players out there who are not happy with what Ankara is doing. And that, in Moscow's view, it can take on Turkey without Russian involvement per se. Yeah, I think the Russia-Egypt relationship is an important and evolving mm-hmm. one. And, and it's also just, I mean, I saw, I think it was yesterday or something that there was an announcement that the Russians and the Egyptians are talking about joint naval drills in the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of the Egyptian Navy running around the Black Sea is a really funny image to me for some yeah. reason. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's it's 2020, so nothing surprises me. Chance. But I, I thought that in what you said, though, if you zoom out, I mean... Russia's really got a lot of issues. I know you're focusing mostly on the on the Middle East and South Caucasus and some of these other places, but I mean, you've got Lukashenko doing mm-hmm. whatever the heck he's doing in Belarus. <laughs> That's an important issue. Ukraine, you know, that conflict has not gone anywhere. That's still this is actually the best description of, of what I heard Lukashenko is doing in Belarus. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's he's quite entertaining, uh, yeah. at least uh, to an outside observer. I feel bad for That's the folks right. in Belarus who have to who have to deal with that every day. I don't mean to to cheapen their experiences, but uh, from where I sit, um, yeah, it's it's uh, sort of get out your popcorn kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, but you, know, you got the Middle East. We talked about the South Caucasus. Central Asia is not exactly stable either. I mean, Kyrgyzstan is is in the midst of, I don't know whether we call this a revolution or just bedlam or anarchy. I can't quite figure out what's going on there. And I think even most sort of trained observers are having trouble. Um, Afghanistan is sort of sort of waiting in the wings there too. Uzbekistan's in the midst of a huge political transition. And then you've got mm-hmm. the China stuff and Russia's got a huge border with China too. So, I mean, does Russia really have the bandwidth to deal with all this? It seems to me like they... You know, I mean, this is all, in some ways this is the eternal condition of Russian foreign policy. It's got too no, many problems. I was, I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah, 
but uh, I mean, what, if, if you were going to prioritize them, how would you prioritize them? Like what's sort of the, the top tier issues and, and can Russia even think about managing some of these second tier issues from your perspective? Well, I think, uh, you know, this, the, the, the crisis in Belarus and possible complications in, in, in Central Asia have been on radar screen. I think that they didn't really expect the, the, the things in Belarus turned out the way that they turned out eventually. Uh, so Belarus is, of course, a huge concern, perhaps the last uh, country that Russia sees as a buffer zone, you know, against the West in the in, in its uh, uh, Western border. Uh, and Kyrgyzstan is, is, is interesting, but I think we also are going to have election in Tajikistan and Kazakhstan uh, later this year. So I'll also, you know, be on the lookout for what happens there. The the analysts in Central Asia say Tajikistan will be smooth. They don't really expect any major uh, revolutions or, or uprisings there. So the current leader Rakhmonov will perhaps get reelected for I don't know what how many times he's been reelected. Uh, but this is kind of a, as they call in the Russian expert community the country of one family. Uh, so it perhaps will stay the way his son is the mayor of the, the country's capital. Uh, and supposed to inherit the, the throne, but we'll see. Uh, and uh, in Kyrgyzstan, as they say, these are just you know the different ethnic and regional clans. These guys, these political parties, uh, doing all this kind of uh, fight for 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 power. And but there is a certain tendency for the country to have every five year a major coup or coup evolution, right? So in a way, it's also kind of predictable. Uh, they don't expect there to be radical change towards Russia. So as long as they are kind of find peace and, and, and find settlement uh, among their own elites or clans, uh, Moscow wouldn't really care, you know, uh, in, in my view. Uh, but this, uh, I think, you know, you said about the Middle East, I, I tend to think that Russia has proved to be more skillful in the Middle East than it tends to be in the post-Soviet space. Because in the post-Soviet space, most of the time, it really is clumsy and lame, the way it moves and, and you know, does certain things. But it also has to be understood that it's a different set of people managing these files. You know, Middle East is perceived to be like a classic foreign policy issue, whereas post-Soviet space is more perceived like an extension of Russian domestics. And a lot of leadership, I think, in the Kremlin still looks at the post-Soviet space as kind of our zone, right, near abroad, and also like, uh, you know, kind of, you do things there the way you do things in Russia. And that's why I think it, it, it turns out to be most of the time uh, rather clumsy. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, but if but it's but I I think in in that answer, I think you would say that. So what's happening in Belarus is probably the top tier concern of all the concerns that Russia is dealing with right now. Is that a fair statement? I would think so. I would think so because uh, you know what what the deal that Lukashenko had with Putin, or you know how he thought he managed the crisis, is perhaps perceived to be rather. I mean, I'm going to say temporary, but again, you you never know how temporary that might be, right? A year or two or 10 years or 15 years. 
but there's a sense that there, there will still needs to be some transition or some process that is branded as transition, even though things stay the same, you know. And I think there is a certain concern in Russia that, that Lukashenko didn't follow Kazakh model, where, you know, where you have kind of, where you handpicked a new ruler, uh, but you kind of uh, keep all, all the elites in place and, you know, you're also kind of presiding over as a national leader. Uh, so Lukashenko didn't follow that model and, and, and I think there are many people here who think it was a major mistake. Uh, but I think as long as so Belarus, Kazakhstan, and perhaps uh, Uzbekistan uh, do not have a major internal crisis, uh, Moscow should be okay in terms of how it feels about you know security of its interests in the post-Soviet space. I mean, Tajikistan is important because, as you mentioned, it borders you know uh, Afghanistan and also important in terms of relations with China. But the expectation here is that it's going to be stable again quote-unquote stable for some time as long as the current ruler is in place so yeah and i i want to i want to continue on that thread too a little bit because um what's happening in xinjiang it's it's easy to just think of that as just you know a part of china but xinjiang really is part of that eurasian Mm -hmm. sort of geography when i think about it that way it's it's sort of an accident of history that that xinjiang is part of china right now and i wonder um, you know, because a lot of these countries, a lot of these Muslim countries in Central Asia and the Middle East, um, on the one hand, you know, they're looking at China as a significant economic power, as a growing military power, um, as an alternative to maybe the United States, especially if you're from a Turkish perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, if if you care at all about sort of pan-Islamic identity, um, you, know, you should probably be aghast at what's going on in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs right now. Um, Turkey, for instance, even though it's sort of presenting itself as a leader of the Muslim world has been relatively quiet on what's going on um, with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. I think that's harder to do when you're, you know, some of the Central Asian states like Kazakhstan, they've actually asserted themselves a little bit more, I think, with China, certainly not that strongly, but a little bit more. Um, where does where does Russia fall in this sort of thing? I mean, Xinjiang is becoming an increasingly big deal in the United States and in an increasingly bigger mm-hmm. stumbling block between any chance for U.S.-China relations to progress forward. Do you feel like Russia, does Russia care? Does Russia feel like that's China's own business? Um, how, how does how does Russia deal with that issue, if at all, from your perspective? And how does that relate to some of the other issues Russia's dealing with in the, in the soft underbelly, as you called it? Yeah, I think Russia has a very important resource as far as this issue is concerned. And the resource is called Ramzan Kadyrov. You know, you have this guy with a kind of rising uh, authority uh, in the Ummah around the globe, you know, in the Middle East and many other uh, Muslim countries, uh, and who is not like, you know, he's an important person in the Russian politics and has come to be a very important foreign policy tool on many aspects. And then you have him being very critical of these policies and, you know, uh, it's kind of important for that Russia is not silent on these issues completely, right? So you have this person who is, you know, speaking against the repressions and all these things. But at the same time, it doesn't really come from the top Russian leadership. So Russia isn't going against its principle of what it says, not interfering into other nations' affairs, you know. So definitely it doesn't want to interfere in China's affairs and, 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 and Chinese affairs and whatever they want to do. Uh, in, in, in Xinjiang. 
so yeah, I think this is pretty much uh, you know the path they follow, and then, then if if asked or pushed on these issues, most of the time Moscow would just simply reiterate uh, the kind of the, the Beijing's uh, narrative. You know, they that they're radicals or you know jihadists. Uh, it's Chinese internal affair, and we're just siding with our Chinese partners because you know they're fighting for their security. La la la. Do you think the same is true from the perspective of, let's say, Hong Kong or Taiwan? Are those also, does Russia sort of see those as it doesn't want to get involved in any sort of argument or disagreement with China on that? And it'll, it'll oh, let yeah, China... Oh, no, absolutely. I think all, everything, you know, that, that has to do with, with uh, China's, you know, having difficult uh, issues with, with its uh, territories or not its territories, but wants to see its territories. Uh, is totally up, up to, to Beijing and, and Russia will not say anything critical uh, on this at all. Well, let's move on. Um, sort of last topic we'll hit before we wrap up. I want to talk a little bit about U.S.-Russia relations. Um, Max, you probably don't remember this, but it left a huge impression on me. One of the first times we met in Moscow, I think it was back in 20, it was December. I remember it was December. It was hard to forget December in Moscow, um, <laughs> but I, th I think it was 2017. And I remember you came up to me and there was that special Senate election happening in Alabama between Doug, jo between Doug, jo Doug Jones and Roy Moore. Yes. Um, and you like you peppered me with a bunch of very intricate questions about the polls <laughs> and who I thought was going to win and what was it going to mean for domestic U.S. political stability. And I just met you. So I think I was I was more polite. But in my head, I was thinking this this Russia analyst guy who focus on focuses on the Middle East knows way more about Alabama's <laughs> Senate election than I do. And like, right? <laughs> yeah, five billion times more than any like normal American following this stuff. So I say that to say that, um, you know, I, I, I understand that y'all are focusing on what's going on in the United States from a really, mm -hmm. from a completely different angle. It's one of the reasons I like talking to, to Russian analysts more than anybody else, because it feels like uh, an interesting reality check on what's going on in the United States. From where you're sitting, what does the U.S. domestic political cycle look like to you? And do you think there is any possibility of improvement in U.S.-Russia ties? Um, and I'll let you take that question as expansively as you want. Yeah, well, let me say my defense uh, I had my bachelor's in American studies, uh, and you know, I, 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 as an exchange student, I spent some time in, in Ohio, uh, and then as a grad student in D.C. as a Fulbright visiting fellow. So uh, my interest in to kind of American domestics is is genuine, and I was was intern is an intern in the Democratic Party of Ohio for six months for six months, something I cannot imagine. You know, Democratic Party having a Russian intern. Uh, yeah, no. I, I hope you weren't interfering <laughs> interfering with any voters' roles there. Man. No, 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 we didn't. We didn't know that. I, I mean, I was, <laughs> a, you know, nineteen year old uh, junior junior student uh, kid, and I didn't really know that word about interfering into someone's elections. Uh, but <laughs> no, it was a really great experience. I enjoyed it. So since then, I, I look, uh, you know, kind of a lot of these issues domestically in the United States. But again, because I'm working now more in the kind of foreign policy domain. I also trying to make sense of what it means for U.S.-Russia relations for American and Russian foreign policies. Uh, Putin made a very interesting speech. He gave an interview two days ago, I think, uh, and it was the first time where he spoke about American election, uh, U.S. presidential election, 
uh, and he was kind of signaling very different things. So on the one hand, he would say, well, you know, there is, you know, kind of general feeling that Trump is like so pro-Russia and he's our candidate, la, la, la. But, you know, it's quite natural for us to want to have a relationship with the president who is, you know, saying complimentary things about uh, about Russia. Uh, but then he says, well, but then, you know, if you look on the merits of the Trump presidency, we have more sanctions than we had under the Obama administration. You know, Trump uh, administration uh, left a lot of important international treaties. The arms control are in disarray. And uh, we don't really, in, in, it was like, you know, on the one hand, we understand he may have domestic constraints and, you know, opposition and Congress and criticism of Democrats. But on the other hand, you know, we have what we have and we're not really happy with the state of affairs under the, the Republican administration. But uh, then I said, you know, but if we're thinking in terms of uh, kind of building a relationship with the new administration, whoever it is, uh, we hope that if it's Trump, uh, you know, things might be better because he will not have, you know, the same uh, set of conditions that he was operating in during the first administration. But if it's a Biden administration, we also are pretty positive that the arms control area is going to be uh, successful, at least in that, you know, the START Treaty will be automatically uh, prolonged. Uh, but also, and then was the, the, the weirdest part, I think, of, of that interview, what he said, but also we're not that alien to democratic value or the values of the Democratic Party. And, but, and then, I don't know if you, have you seen that interview? I have not. Well, uh, I, mean, but... I imagine your, a lot of your listeners haven't either don't watch Russian TV. So I'll just reiterate some, some <laughs> talking point, one talking point, which was quite interesting because he said, well, but the Democratic Party, you know, ideologically, they're really offshoots of, you know, social Democrats in Europe, and these are offshoots of the Communist Party. And then he starts talking about how the Soviet Union was supporting African-Americans, how the Soviet Union thought that African-Americans are powerful force of revolution. And then, you know, when, when if, if people listen to the first part, they made conclusions like, you know, Putin is really, you know, giving up on Trump. He's ready for the Biden administration. He, Russia is thinking in terms of, you know, calculating what can be done if, if it's Biden administration. But then if you listen only to the second part, you would think he's really reproducing a lot of talking points of the Republicans and, and, and Trump in that the Democrats are really, you know, socialists and communists. Uh, and, 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 and even though Putin was, you know, talking about this in rather complimentary form, saying, you know, we have this experience from the Soviet time, so we're ready to work even with the communist administration, something like this. I don't think this is the time, type of phrase uh, Biden would want to have, you know. Uh, so, well, it's it's yeah. not. A, I mean, if, if it had been President Sanders, that'd be one thing. But right, I mean, right, right, right. Biden no, is a... totally. It's a totally. It's a really very like kind of twisted account. Uh, but he was like, you know, saying this seriously. So people concluded he was either trolling, or he was, uh, you know, advancing Trump's agenda, or he just has terrible advisors in American politics if they present, you know, the Democratic uh, Party as as the type of of the party that he thinks he can work. On and he said, like I was also a member of the Communist Party for you know several decades. I know what it's like. It's like, no man, it's it's a little bit different thing, you know. 
I mean, if he re- if he really yeah. wanted to troll, he would he would start saying you know Black Lives Matter and going on Twitter and going after the United States for human rights abuses. Right. Well, he doesn't have Twitter, <laughs> for for the better or worse, you know. Uh, but no, yeah, I I I, I totally sh- share this. But uh, but this was interesting. So it, it it really you know maybe he's just you know saying this to mess with uh, with this narratives with voters. Or again, be very, you know, ambiguous about what type of message he wants to send uh, to, um, uh, you know, to American leadership or American voters. But I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's really hard to, to make to make sense. But uh, from for to your question, where where it's going, I think the general consensus here is that the relationship is going to be bad, regardless of who gets uh, who 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 gets elected, uh, and. It doesn't have to do with the current elites in both parties, but the idea is that there is only the only chance for the relations to to kind of uh, get back at least on a positive trajectory is that there should be a new cycle of elites in the United States. But I think if you're looking at it from from American perspective, it's similar about Russian politics. Right? There is a sense that you can't really deal with Putin anymore. Uh, we, you know, we've tried everything; it, it doesn't really work. Uh, so yeah, I think the expectations are rather grim, and the only idea is you just need to think about, you know, better deconfliction and making sure that uh, this kind of there is a successful crisis management that doesn't bring the two countries on on the brink of of major clash, of military clash. Yeah, I think you're right that if Biden wins, I think arms control will go through and some of those other basic things will happen. Mm-hmm. But I, I, well, I won't say, unfortunately, that I'll leave that up to the beholder. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I do think the relationship is going to become more ideological. I mean, Biden has mm-hmm. been sort of front and center that he's thinking about American values and how that relates to American foreign policy. And even though you and I can probably sit here and diagram on paper that there are actually areas where Russia and the United States have similar interests if they mm-hmm. can just get over themselves and work together. Um, but, you know, for better and for worse, and in, you know, in, in no small part due to Russia's own behavior, uh, Russia's become a political football inside the United States. So it's driven as much, if not more, by those U.S. domestic priorities as it is by any sort of approach to foreign policy, I think, at this point. And that's, that'll definitely be the case if Trump wins again. And from a Biden administration point of view, if you just take him at his word, um, you know, it's it's going to be American values front and center. Uh, that's right. why it's funny to it's funny. It's especially funny to me. The thing you said about Putin and communism, because, I mean, Biden's ba- he's basically a soft version of a neocon. I mean, he he sort uh-huh. of, you know, he, he dabbles in the uh, international multilateralism environment. Uh-huh. He certainly would be more multilateral than stuff. But in terms of using American military might to enforce American values. I mean, he's, he's got some of those neoconservative tendencies. He's not at all, he's not all on the left when it comes from a foreign policy perspective. Let me say one thing, actually, uh, perhaps something that you don't think about in the U.S. as, as how Russia sees that. Uh, you know, Russia thinks, and I say Russia, meaning uh, a lot of policymakers who are speaking on these matters and, you know, uh, pundits who are uh, close to different kind of, Think tanks uh, that are working with, with government structures. Uh, the idea is that if if Biden is elected president, uh, given you know his uh, kind of physical state, he may not be the one doing most of the work all the time. So 
there will be people around him and different kind of quote unquote power centers, you know, different people d- doing different things and amassing different powers within, you know, their, 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 their hands uh, who may be competing with each other. So it, it, the, the, this kind of general metaphor for the Biden administration is just going to be a set of different influencers, you know, making in, in important decisions domestically and internationally. So uh, a lot of the focus here is, you know, directed towards looking at who these, you know, centers might be, what the role for for vice president might be, for the role for potential national security advisor and things like this. It doesn't seem to be more monolithic if if it's Trump uh, reelected. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. Uh, Max, I know we're running up on time. I'll get you out of here on a on sort of a curveball question at the end. Um, Vladimir Putin, he's he's 68 years old. Is he still the leader of Russia in 2030? What do you think? 2030. Wow, uh, that's that's a far shot. Uh, well, uh, I don't think so. Definitely uh, until 2030, uh, and I don't think you know the, the this kind of this key question about this transit. When was it? 2024 supposed to be, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, the and you know, this is kind of major. We we well that when he took this decision to you know, how do you say? Uh, not deny, but you know, there the, they used to be presidential like term limits, and then mm-hmm. he got get rid of it. I just forgot the verb. The right yeah, he can- canceled. Canceled, right, right, right. Thank you. It just slipped my mind. He canceled that decision, and you know, people thought before he canceled that decision, people thought that Russia was really heading to more of like this Kazakh model. I mentioned uh, referring to Belarus, you know, where you have a hand-picked successor, uh, but then Putin is kind of still being the guy, either having a you know nominal position or you know heading some uh, institute state council or anything like this uh and that would be you know kind of his 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 political future then he canceled that and 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 people got weirded out of you know where is it going uh is this, is he planning to you know continue running for another re-election or something uh i think uh, the 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 scenario with the successor is more likely for 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 my own uh, calculation but uh i think he's not going to tell that until the very last moment, because uh, people will either, you know, behave or you know differently, or start creating different uh, power blocks, uh, you know, in Kremlin and and around it, and that may change uh, the this kind of uh, the, the balance of of powers that he's created. All right. Well, I hope you'll come back many times and check in on that as we go. Max, thank you so much for your time, uh, and cheers. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. 
Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.